Podcastle, episode 81, for December 8th, 2009, on Bookstores, Burners, and Origami, by Jason D. Whitman. Welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your co-host, Dave Thompson. I've got a fun story for you today, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it, other than it involves dirigibles, Edgar Allan Poe, not a zombie, and an underground printing press, literally. Hell, I told you about it, didn't I? Oops. I love alternate histories or historical fantasies for many, many reasons. I love seeing book covers of Robert E. Lee's fighting a dragon or reading about patriot witches who helped found America or the Elizabethan age of Marvel superheroes. Throw some steampunk in there and part of my brain becomes like a Michael Bay film exploding over and over and over again. I have Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker and Scott Westerfield's Leviathan whispering to me like a pair of sirens from my bookshelf. Put away Yon Comics and that Charlie Houston vampire noir, Dave. But the thing I enjoy most about alternate histories is how they allow us to dream backwards and dream differently. To imagine how things could have been better if we'd gone down a different road. Or, if we're seeing a darker past, how it might help illuminate the choices we're about to make in our present. Whether we're talking about if the Allies had lost World War II and the USA was an occupied country, or if how things would be different if instead of Israel, the Jewish refugees were given Sitka, Alaska. The British military recruiting magician, or hey, even dragons, to help them win the Napoleonic War. I love looking back at it and asking what if, and what now. Many of you know our sister podcast, Escape Haunt, is going through some editorial changes. I'd like to imagine that maybe somewhere out there, there's even a more recent but better alternate history, where Jeremiah Tolbert, in a very Fortean twist, was returned to us by the very aliens that abducted him so he could continue editing the biggest podcast magazine in all the cosmos. And in that same strange history, fans everywhere are raving about how he's the best thing to happen to Escape Pod since Steve Ely created it. Jeremy, we'll miss you. Anyway, all this talk of alternate histories and parallel universes brings us to today's story on Bookstores, Burners, and Origami by Jason D. Whitman, originally published at Sci-Fi.com. I know, I know, we're Podcastle. We publish fantasy. Trust us. I'm pointing at this story right now. It's fantasy. Jason D. Whitman lives and works in Minnesota. His works appeared in the Greatest Uncommon Denominator magazine and the hardcover anthology The Best of Bane's Universe 2006. He's currently working on a novel. The story is read to us by Brian Rollins, whose voice acting talents can also be heard at thevoicesinmyhead.com. In addition to being sci-fi critic at Bureau42.com, he's working on finishing his first novel, Crystal Tech. Brian is married with two kids and currently lives in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. So sit back, relax, and remember, if you play with matches, you might get burned. Hope you enjoy the story. On Bookstores, Burners, and Origami by Jason D. Whitman Hitomi waited on the sidewalk, uncomfortably aware of the police dirigibles hovering overhead. Their hulking mass was made even more ominous by the glare of their searchlights, fueled by kerosene, panning back and forth across the streets. A constant hiss of steam emanated from their engines, softer now that they were idling, but all the more menacing for that. It was a chill autumn morning, and Hitomi's breath misted in the air, colored orange by the sun peeking over the Minneapolis skyscape to the east. Likewise colored orange were the smoke and steam rising from the bookstore across the street, the bookstore where Hitomi worked. The store had been broken into last night and set afire. As far as anyone could tell, no money or merchandise was stolen. This was all in accordance with the modus operandi of the burners. Though Hitomi had dressed warmly, as would any Minnesotan, native or emigre, Her inactivity allowed the chill to seep through the fabric of her dress, high-necked with an ivory brooch at the throat, the thick yarn of her mittens, the fur of her cap. Close by, the horses hitched to the bright red fire wagons of the Minneapolis Fire Department stamped and strained at their bits. Presently, a man dressed in blacks and browns strode past, wolfing down a meat pie he had purchased from a street vendor several blocks down. As he finished off the last of his pie, The square of wax paper which had held it floated down to the cobblestones, forgotten. It was reasonably free of gravy. Hitomi picked it up, smoothing it out as best she could, folding it this way and that in her mind. 
She had read that when Michelangelo, that eminent Western artist, approached a block of marble for a sculpture, he saw the finished work as being imprisoned within the rock, and he used his hammer and chisel to set it free. Not so with origami. As her grandfather in Japan once told her, a blank, unfolded sheet of paper could become anything, a dragon or a crane, a poem or a portrait, a tragedy or a comedy. The task of the origamist, or any other artist, was not to set the image free, but to give it shape, definition. She had learned the art from her grandfather in her old home in Japan when she was small. He did not teach her the art so much as show her how to teach herself. To begin with, he taught her how to construct a few simple figures, first a bird, then a horse, then watched her duplicate them with a fresh piece of paper, smiling at her little face as she wrinkled in concentration. But after a while, all instruction ceased. Instead, he would show her a finished work, each a bit more complex than the last one before, present her with a virgin sheet of paper, and ask her how the work might have been made. She would make mistakes, learn from them, then take a new course of action, until finally she had a duplicate of the original work before her. And through all of this, her grandfather would never instruct, only ask questions. Is that fold at the right angle? Is that edge the right length? And soon, Hitomi grew wise enough to ask those questions herself. In time, she was making her own creations instead of duplicating others. Hitomi took pride in her talent. Anyone could do origami by following instructions in a book. Such people were no more artists than if they had used a paint-by-numbers kit or wrote those penny dreadfuls that vendors sold alongside their meat pies. The true artist was a creator, not a follower. Someone approached, and she looked up to see Mr. Raymond, the owner of the bookstore. It was Burner, sure enough, he said. Mr. Raymond was a rail thin man with a shaggy mustache that hid his mouth from view. Despite his black winter coat that hung down to his knees, he also shivered from the cold. It would have been a big fire if it hadn't been caught in time, but the cash register wasn't even touched. Were any symbols left behind? Hitomi asked. Mr. Raymond nodded. The usual, he said. This meant a plumed feather, meant to represent a quill pen, with an X drawn over it to represent eradication. That confirms it, then, Hitomi said. Was anything essential destroyed? Mr. Raymond knew what she referred to and winked. It's safe to go back inside now, he said. And he led her beneath the black painted awning skeleton adorning the bookstore's magenta facade. The remainder of the morning was occupied with the Minneapolis Fire Department's investigation of the fire, followed by another investigation by the Hennepin County Damage Assessor. With a smile on his face mandated by President Tobias N.N. Hornby's policy of maintained positivity, the assessor informed Mr. Raymond that the damage was enough to warrant a free reconstruction by government workers. Mr. Raymond did not greet this with much enthusiasm. And the books? he asked. Not to worry, sir. They will be replaced by brand new books fresh off the presses of Tobias N.N. Hornby Incorporated. Mr. Raymond, expecting this, nodded. Thank you, he said, and set the assessor on his way. Well, he said to Hitomi when the assessor was out of earshot, at least we won't be running out of kindling for a while, or toilet paper. That afternoon, Mr. Raymond rolled up his sleeves and set to his own assessment of the damage. Hitomi was there to help, plus he notified his two other employees by P-mail, informing them of last night's events and asking for assistance. When the metal canisters returned to him through the pneumatic tube system, they contained messages saying Mr. James and Miss Stacy would both be there shortly. In the meantime, Mr. Raymond retrieved three garbage cans from the alley, placing them in the middle of the store. Then, Hitomi followed him with a clipboard. He walked among the shelves, reading the titles aloud, and stating whether they would be sold at a reduced price, given a new cover, or simply thrown into trash cans. His hands and wrists were covered with soot by the time Miss Stacy and Mr. James arrived. Miss Stacy was a soft-spoken woman with sandy blonde hair and wire-rimmed glasses. Mr. James was the son of escaped slaves who could quote literary works from memory and had taught Hitomi English after her arrival from Japan. Miss Stacy picked up another clipboard 
and Mr. James started at the opposite end of the store from Mr. Raymond, and the work went twice as fast. When the inventory was done, night had fallen. The nine o'clock curfew was in force, and the four of them would have to spend the night at the store. But in any event, their work was not yet finished. The books were not the only things that needed assessment. Miss Stacy, said Mr. Raymond, keep a lookout for the police. Toward the rear of the bookstore, behind one of the bookshelves, was a trap door known only to the four of them. First removing the books, then the shelf, they opened the trap door and passed through it into the hidden basement while Miss Stacy kept vigil. At the bottom of the ladder, Mr. Raymond fumbled around until he found the matches, then lit a candle. In the dim glow of the flame, they saw the metallic, oiled shininess of the printing press. The fire didn't even touch it, Mr. James remarked. Even if the fire had reached this room, it would have done only superficial damage to the press, said Mr. Raymond. But if the burners knew of it, they'd come down here and rip it apart. So we'd best keep them ignorant. What of the government workers who will be doing their repairs? Hitomi asked. What if they discover this by chance? Though the burners were the reason the press was kept hidden, the government was the reason it existed. There had to be something to preserve true literature, with all its ugliness and darkness, against the derivative triteness of those penny dreadfuls sanctioned by the Hornby administration. Mr. Raymond considered. The fire didn't come anywhere near this area, he said, so the workers shouldn't have to either. But you're right, it's something we should look out for. We might have to take turns watching them. They'll be working around the clock, said Mr. James. If the press were working, they'd probably hear it. We might not be able to print anything for some time. Right again, Mr. Raymond acknowledged. Addressing both his companions, he asked, Would you like to get some done tonight? Both Hitomi and Mr. James nodded. Mr. James volunteered for the first shift, allowing Hitomi to get some sleep, if only on the hard floor upstairs. Is there anything you'd like to start with, Mr. Raymond asked. Mr. James smiled. One of my favorite authors, he said, and a title I find somehow appropriate for the occasion, The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Hitomi smiled in return. You think of Miss Stacy as D'Artagnan? Mr. James laughed. Don't you? I'll be sure to tell her that. As Mr. Raymond and Mr. James went down the tunnel that housed the plates they used to print the books, Hitomi walked back to the ladder to climb back and she saw a canister in the pneumatic tube that stood next to the ladder. This was not part of the current official P-mail system installed by the government nine years ago in 1878. This was part of the previous system, which was still more than sufficient to carry messages quickly over great distances. Abandoned by the Hornby administration, it was taken over by a coalition of millionaires in Chicago, people who, like Mr. Raymond, wanted to preserve true literature. Hitomi retrieved the canister from the tube. It was very light, not a manuscript, like those that came frequently through the underground P-mail system for underground publication, but a message. The tunnel down which Hitomi ran felt like a wine cellar, cool and dry. Keeping her eyes focused on the candle flame up ahead, she steered herself by how the hem of her dress brushed against the crates lining either wall from which wafted the metallic scent of thousands upon thousands of printing plates. Miss Hitomi, what's wrong? P-mail, she panted, handing Mr. Raymond the canister. Mr. Raymond took it, his eyes widening when he felt how light it was. He took out a single sheet of paper and read it in silence. Poe's coming to Minneapolis, he said at last. Edgar Allan Poe? Mr. James queried. The same, Mr. Raymond replied. He'll be arriving in the cities exactly four weeks from tomorrow. Mr. James leaned back against a crate with a look of resigned chagrin. You know, I can't understand people's admiration for him. Waging a one-man war of words against the Hornby administration was a Sisyphean task for anyone, let alone a man in his old age. Even I admire him in that regard. I'll even admit he's done some good writing, but the things he did during the war are not easily forgotten. Poe had fled Richmond when the South seceded. He became a fiery essayist for the Confederate cause. When Lee surrendered at Appomattox, Poe went into hiding and stayed there for almost a decade. Then, newspaper magnate Tobias N. N. Hornby, 
who had bought all the nation's news publications and printing houses, many of them during the war's aftermath, when such things could be bought with food and blankets, ran successfully for president in 1876. Then he declared all of his printing houses and newspapers to be weapons in his war against the festering plague of negativism. That was when Poe came out of oblivion, if not out of hiding, and attacked the Hornby administration more vehemently than he had ever assailed Lincoln or Grant. And I'll never forgive him for writing the gold bug, Mr. James declared. That story is like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Four weeks from tomorrow, Hitomi remarked. Isn't that when Hornby is scheduled to speak at the Capitol Rotunda? Mr. Raymond nodded. The timing is probably deliberate, he said. Poe always draws a big crowd wherever he goes. It would be a stinging blow to Hornby and his publicity machine if they lost a head-to-head -head popularity contest with one of Poe's recitals. A battle of banners and pamphlets against word of mouth, no less, Mr. James pointed out. Will Poe do his recital here at the store, then? Hitomi asked. That's what he's asking for, said Mr. Raymond. Of course he won't have heard of the fire, but we should be able to do it, he added upon reflection. Knowing the quality of government repair work, a lot of the floorboards will be twisted beyond redemption, and there might be a mob outside the door pushing to get in, but it will be worth it just to see Poe. Mr. Raymond replied to Poe's P-mail, informing him of the fire, but assuring that they would be able to accommodate him. Then he and Mr. James set to work printing a new edition of The Three Musketeers, while Hutomi went back through the trap door. Any sign of activity... Hitomi asked Miss Stacy. The dirigibles are on the prowl, came the reply, but I haven't seen anybody on the street. She looked at Hitomi. So what did you see down there? Hitomi then told Miss Stacy of the message from Poe. Predictably, Miss Stacy was excited. It's nice to hear some good news, she said. What are they printing downstairs? Indeed, the workings of the press could be heard through the floor, but not, thankfully, through the pavement outside. The Three Musketeers... Hitomi replied, We'll print what we want in four hours. Mr. Raymond made sure all printing ceased at 7 a.m., and all the freshly printed pages of The Three Musketeers and Tales Told in Darkness, a collection of post stories written while he was in hiding, were hauled up through the trapdoor to be taken home and bound later. The workers would be laboring in shifts around the clock, overseen by police during the curfew hours, until the work was finished so any trips through the trapdoor would be seen. When the workers arrived, precisely at 8 a.m., Mr. Raymond directed them to the damaged part of the store and gave them strict instructions to stay within that area. The workers nodded readily. It made no difference to them. In the meantime, Mr. Raymond hung a sign in the window declaring fire sale in red letters to the pedestrians, horse riders, and carriage drivers on Lake Street. Soon the bang of hammers was accompanied by the hubbub of people come to gawk at the fire damage and gossip about those lunatic burners and what was on their minds. They also came to get excellent books, somewhat charred at the edges but still readable, at a price of a penny dreadful. Such as were even now being hawked outside by street vendors trying to capitalize on the crowd. And into this tumult breezed the figure of Mrs. Marilyn U.H. O'Morphy. Hitomi smiled to see her approach, carrying little Jessica, who looked somewhat daunted by the noise. Mrs. O'Morphy smiled in return. Good morning, Miss Hitomi. I can see you're being kept busy. Mrs. O'Morphy was a prolific writer, a member of the underground movement. Her work was nowhere near as macabre as Poe's, but it was still deemed too alien to the positive right-thinking mind for acceptance by Tobias N.N. Hornby Incorporated so her books were produced frequently by the press downstairs. I can't complain, Mrs. O'Morphy, Hitomi reached out to tickle Jessica, who giggled. I'm lucky to still have my job. I'm seeing many of my books among the damaged, Mrs. O'Morphy said, looking around. I was thinking I might increase their sellability by signing them. I'm sure Mr. Raymond would have no problem with that. I'll find you a pen. Soon a table was set up with piles of books for Mrs. O'Morphy to sign. Jessica who was fast approaching five years old, stayed behind the counter where Hitomi kept her company. There were a handful of children's books kept behind the counter, an arrangement emerging from previous book signings by Mrs. O'Morphy, and Jessica was kept happily occupied for a while. 
Nevertheless, the time came when Jessica tugged on Hitomi's sleeve and asked for a pencil and paper. Hitomi gave them to her, and Jessica sat down to draw some masterwork, or pen, her magnum opus. Hitomi looked down at her and smiled at memories of Japan. Her grandfather had been a calligrapher as well as an origamist. He spent much time in his room working with brush and parchment, but he always did so in private, allowing no one, not even Hitomi's mother, to enter the room while he worked. Once, when Hitomi asked why her grandfather was so secretive, her mother replied, If he were not, he would not be your grandfather. Only years later did Hitomi realize that this meant her mother did not know. At the time, however, Hitomi was a little girl and curious. Her mother's cryptic reply to her question convinced her that mother and grandfather were in a league of secrecy, and that piqued her curiosity beyond bearing. So Hitomi made up her mind to find out what her grandfather wrote. On the night she chose to make her move, Hitomi willed herself to stay up late. When the rest of the house was silent, she crept out to see lantern light shining from within grandfather's room. Hitomi waited. Soon her grandfather opened the door, stepped outside, closed it, and left in order to relieve himself. He frequently made such excursions. Hitomi counted on that. When he was gone, she crept forth. She held her breath as she opened the door. It yielded grudgingly at first, then abruptly gave way, and Hitomi stumbled before catching herself and stepped with some trepidation into the room. She only wanted to see what grandfather was writing. And then she would leave. She had not yet learned the thousands of characters that made up her language, but that was not the point. The forbidden fruit was always the most desirable. Hitomi walked over to the low table that stood flanked by a pair of burning lanterns. On the table was an ink jar, on which leaned a calligraphy brush and a sheet of paper. On the paper, no writing was visible. Needless to say, Hitomi was very disappointed. All this trouble for nothing. What had grandfather been doing all this time? Then she noticed something odd about the brush and the ink jar. The hairs of the brush were not blackened with ink, and the liquid in the jar was water. Hitomi did not understand this at all, but grandfather would be returning soon, so she would have to leave. She turned to the door and saw it was closed. Her heart skipped a beat. She did not remember closing the door. With a bit more haste than necessary, she walked to the door and tried to open it. But it would not budge. Hitomi panicked as she began clawing at the edge. When it suddenly gave way, she found herself staring at grandfather's knees. Looking up at his face, Hitomi saw a frown, which she mistook for one of anger. She backed away. I'm sorry, grandfather. I'm sorry. Then his frown softened, and she saw it was a frown of thought. So, he said without preamble, his voice gentle, you wish to learn what I do here? Hitomi simply nodded. Grandfather nodded in turn and stepped into the room. He sat down at the table and indicated the space to his left. Sit down beside me. Hitomi did so. Grandfather was letting her in on the secret, and she was not about to jeopardize that gift through disobedience. Grandfather picked up the parchment and held it up before her eyes. What do you see? he asked. Hitomi shook her head. Nothing, Grandfather. He placed the parchment back on the table and picked up the brush. And yet, before you came in, I was writing on it. He dipped the brush in the ink jar, then applied it to the parchment. The water glistened for a moment in the light of the lanterns, then sank into the parchment fibers and was gone from sight. If you cannot see something, he said as he held up the parchment again, does that mean it is not there? Hitomi frowned. No, grandfather, but I do not understand. He looked at her squarely. Did you know that your mother never once disobeyed my instructions to never enter this room while I was writing? Hitomi looked down at the floor. I'm sorry, Grandfather. I was selfish. Grandfather laughed quietly. You are curious, he said, as your mother has never been. She would look at this parchment, and seeing nothing, would think there was nothing there. She sees the door to this room is closed. Here's my instructions never to enter, and that is enough for her. But not you, granddaughter. To you, the closed door conceals wondrous things. Things worth risking your grandfather's anger to see. He indicated the parchment. What do you think I have written here? 
I do not know, Grandfather. He considered a moment. Then, let me ask you differently. What might I have written here? Hitomi thought gravely. A word, a name, a poem, a story. A story. Grandfather nodded, smiling. You know this parchment could be any of those things, or the characters I wrote on the door to guard this room, or a thousand other things. That wisdom makes you one of the few people on this earth who are fit to learn my secrets. Hitomi's eyes widened. Now Grandfather began folding the parchment, creasing it. But you must be patient, Granddaughter, he cautioned. One cannot learn all my secrets in one night. And before you learn the greater secrets, you must first learn the lesser ones. And at present, you are still a little girl who is up past her bedtime. His fingers worked nimbly, folding and creasing, folding and creasing. But for now, it is enough for you to know this. As I have said, a blank sheet of parchment can be anything you wish it to be. But if it can be anything, that means that it is not yet anything. Without form, without definition, it is powerless, meaningless. To gain power or meaning, it must be folded or written upon. This can be done using any art or any language. He finished, and a little bird now lay in his hands. He presented the bird to his Tomi. Take this with you, he told her, and keep it beside your bed. Tomorrow I will begin teaching you to read and write. Miss Hitomi? Now she looked up to see Mr. James addressing her, his face alert, intent on some purpose. Yes. Without being too obvious, Mr. James murmured, look over my right shoulder. Am I wrong, or have we seen that man before? Hitomi looked, moving only her eyes. She had seen him before, a gaunt, somehow ominous figure clad in rags, his bald head gleaming even in the indirect light. Something in his eyes spoke of intensity and of extreme patience. He seemed utterly alone even in that crowded room, because he stood out so much from the others. I saw him taking many glances at the fire damage, Mr. James went on, still murmuring, and just now I saw him pretending to read a book. I know he was pretending because he was holding the book upside down. Hitomi resisted the impulse to glance again. Do you think he is a burner? Would a man seek to obliterate the written word if he were literate? Illiteracy does not make him a burner, Mr. James. He cocked an eyebrow at her. But if he were illiterate, Hitomi thought further, then it would be odd for him to be in a bookstore. Mr. James smiled. Exactly. I'll bring up the matter with Mr. Raymond. In the meantime... Just keep an eye on him. As Mr. James left, Hitomi felt a tug at her elbow and looked down to see Jessica proudly displaying her finished artwork. It looked like a Japanese character. Just then, Mrs. O'Morphy came back to retrieve Jessica, having signed all her books. She saw what her daughter had drawn. She didn't swear in Japanese, did she? She asked with a grin. Hitomi smiled in turn. Only if she'd put a stroke here she said, pointing. As it is, she merely wrote the name of my mother's favorite goldfish. She was only joking, and they both knew it. They laughed. I suppose one stroke can make all the difference, Mrs. O'Morphy reflected. It reminds me of an old Jewish legend. Really? Mrs. O'Morphy nodded. When the Jews of Prague were persecuted, the rabbi made a creature called a golem to defend them. He sculpted a man-like figure out of clay and brought it to life by among other things, inscribing the Hebrew word emet, meaning truth, on its forehead. And with this golem, the rabbi defended the Jews of Prague. And when its work was done, the rabbi turned the golem back to clay by striking out the first letter of the word emet, which left met, meaning death. As Mrs. O'Morphy finished, she noticed Hitomi had become slack-jawed, her eyes focused inward. Miss Hitomi, is something wrong? Hitomi blinked, startled. I... I am sorry, Mrs. O'Morphy. That story, it reminded me of something my grandfather once said to me. I never really understood it until now. What was it? Hitomi hesitated before saying, I think it best not to say just yet. I'm not sure I understand it even now. That night, 
Hitomi took the trolley back to the boarding house on Chicago Avenue, where she lived. She entered the house and went up to the stairs with eager anticipation. Since hearing Mrs. O'Morphy's story, Hitomi had been unable to get it out of her mind, and she apologized several times for her distractedness. At the top of the stairs, she met Mr. Hugo, the jolly old soul who owned the house. Good evening, Miss Hitomi, Mr. Hugo said in his usual avuncular tones. Will you be joining us for supper? With regret, I must decline, Mr. Hugo. Hitomi had bought a meat pie from a vendor and eaten it on the trolley, so she could act on her hunch the moment she got home. I have some things that need doing. Mr. Hugo's smile faded. Is something wrong, Miss Hitomi? No, Mr. Hugo, she reassured him. There is merely something I wish to understand more fully, but I thank you for your concern. And she went on into her room. Once her door was locked, she took off her gloves and went straight to her bedroom, retrieving a wooden box from the closet. It was the box in which her grandfather kept the ink jar and the calligraphy brush. The box had been willed to Hitomi upon his death. She had kept it in the closet all these years since immigrating to the United States, first to San Francisco, then to Minnesota. She only took it out once in a while, for the sake of remembrance. She had never once used the brush. But now, opening the box, she saw the jar, the brush, and the little origami bird Grandfather had made all those years ago. She picked it up gingerly, for the paper had become fragile. She looked at it for some moments, wondering what to do, how to confirm her suspicions. Years ago, when she had first slept with it beside her bed, she had been awakened in the darkest hours by something. She could not tell what made the noise, in fact, she could not honestly say she heard it. But something had alerted her. She looked around, but since the only window faced away from the moon, there was no light to see by. She listened, but there was nothing to be heard now. Finally, she gave up, lay back down, and slept peacefully for the rest of the night. The next night, however, she heard the noise again, and she knew she heard it. A strong breeze blew into the room through the window. But Hitomi was sure she heard it, a sound like the flapping of a bird's wings. But it also sounded like the fluttering of paper. She screamed for Grandfather. A few seconds later, the door opened and Grandfather was there. The opening of the door gave the wind an avenue of escape, and it rushed past him, causing the lantern he carried to gutter. Calmly, he raised his hand and caught the paper bird between his thumb and forefinger. Then he set the lantern down, and went to Hitomi's side, gathering her into his arms. When she calmed down, he held up the origami bird. Hitomi looked at it fearfully. I'm sorry, granddaughter, he said. I made this bird to be your guardian, and I may have made it too zealous. It only sought to protect you from the wind. Father, said Hitomi's mother as she appeared in the door, would you please not fill my daughter's mind with such childish notions? She strode to the window and closed it. Hitomi, it is just the wind blowing your little bird around. And for years, that was what Hitomi believed. Now, Hitomi looked at the old paper bird, remembering Grandfather's words, remembering Mrs. O'Morphy's story of the golem. How to confirm her suspicions. Finally, she placed the bird back in the box, but did not close the box. She took a bath luxuriating in hot water for half an hour. When she finished and returned to her bedroom, the bird was still in the box, exactly as she had left it. She stood there now, thinking. Then her face lit up, and she turned to the bedroom window. She opened it, leaving four inches for the wind to blow through. Then she adjusted her lantern on the nightstand, so the flame would not quite go out, but would still leave the room in darkness. Then she got beneath the covers and closed her eyes. It was some minutes before it happened. Hitomi kept her eyes closed, but listened intently, until a sizable gust of wind blew in from outside. Then she heard it, the sound of a bird's wings flapping. She opened her eyes, but could see nothing. With a fluid motion, practiced over several years, she reached for the lantern and turned up the wick. The origami bird stood on the nightstand. Hitomi looked at it warily, Though she expected no harm from it, she left the bed, went to the window, and closed it. Going back to her bed, she resumed her scrutiny of the origami bird. 
Her suspicions were correct, but what did that mean? What could she do with this? In the years after the encounter in the calligraphy room, Hitomi's grandfather had taught her to read and write. But that was all he had done. Though she was grateful to learn the characters and the secrets they unlocked, the secrets that were wondrous if only to a child. She never learned why her grandfather did his calligraphy in silent, why he used water instead of ink. She always thought he would tell her in due time, once she had mastered the characters. Then her grandfather had died of a stroke. The calligraphy box was willed to Hitomi, but she never used it. She thought it somehow disrespectful of grandfather's memory, and the strokes of the brush were too broad for practical writing anyways. So it remained in the bedroom closet, opened every once in a while during moods of nostalgia, but utterly unused. Now, sitting on the bed, staring at the paper bird on the nightstand, Hitomi realized that this was what grandfather had been hiding all that time. She knew the secret, but what could she do with it? Could she do anything with it? Would this paper bird obey her? Bracing herself, Hitomi said to the bird, Look at me. The bird did nothing. Hitomi sat there at a loss. Then, on impulse, she repeated the words in her native language. Slowly, the bird's head turned until it faced Hitomi. Her eyes widened, and a laugh escaped her, as a slight friction of fear of the unusual mixed with a child's scent of wonder within her. She held up her hand and said in Japanese, Come to me. A few flaps of its wings, and the bird perched on her index finger. She laughed again, the laugh of discovery. Then she looked at the calligraphy box lying open in the closet. Telling the bird to go back into the nightstand, she retrieved the box and brought it to her bed. She looked at the calligraphy brush and the empty jar. There was so much she still did not know. What should she do with it? If she did something wrong, how could she undo it, if at all? Memories of grandfather gave only clues, hints. This parchment could be any of those things or the characters I wrote on the door to guard this room. The only option was cautious, methodical experimentation. The government workers finished the repairs in just about two weeks. There were highly visible gaps between some of the floorboards, and others were already becoming warped. But Mr. Raymond accepted these results and set the workers on their way. Soon after, the books from Tobias N.N. Hornby Incorporated arrived. Mr. Raymond took these, works such as Eleanor Porter's Pollyanna or Hornby's own Thirteen Steps to Positive Fulfillment, and displayed them right along with the books frowned upon by Hornby's policy, or rather, discouraged, because Hornby and his ilk always prided themselves on never frowning. The method Hornby and his lackeys used to circumvent the First Amendment and restrict the printing of so-called negative literature was this. The Hornby administration never sought to abolish the First Amendment, nor did they violate it directly. The printing of negative literature was not forbidden per se, but since all of the nation's major printing companies were owned by Hornby, monopoly laws were frequently ignored in view of his generous contributions to post-Civil War recovery, it was, in large part, determined by the employees in his printing companies what literature would get wide circulation. The government itself never participated in the decision-making process. President Hornby's reasoning, often stated in his speeches and pamphlets, was that he would not have to forbid the printing of negative literature outright. Once the American people read the works distributed by TNN Hornby Incorporated, and saw how positive and life-affirming they were in relation to the works of Poe or the latter works of Twain, they would embrace the new positive literature, and America would enter a new golden age. There was also the fact that small presses almost never made a profit, due in no small part to the taxes levied by the Hornby administration on paper products, which TNN Hornby Incorporated circumvented by making their own paper. But somehow... President Hornby never mentioned this in his speeches and pamphlets. Nevertheless, in Mr. Raymond's bookstore, negative literature outsold the positive ten to one. 
Now it was safe to operate the underground press again. Hitomi volunteered for the first shift. In fact, she asked Mr. Raymond if she could take Miss Stacy's place. I have no problem with that, Mr. Raymond replied. But why do you want to do it tonight? Your normal shift is tomorrow. Hitomi hesitated. You should know this, Mr. Raymond. It's your bookstore. At that moment, Miss Stacy approached. That bald man is here again, she whispered. The one Mr. James pointed out to us. And so he was. He was not doing anything out of the ordinary, just standing among the shelves with an open book in his hand, held right side up this time, if only by chance. Hitomi mouthed the words, Wait until he leaves. Closing time was near, so Mr. Raymond approached the man and said as much to him. Would you like to purchase that book, sir? Mr. Raymond asked. No, thank you, the bald man replied, gave Mr. Raymond the book, and left. Mr. Raymond shut and locked the door. Mr. James, who had been arranging books on a shelf, joined the others at the counter. Miss Stacy spoke up. He had been holding that book for a good fifteen minutes, and he never flipped a page. Mr. Raymond turned to Hitomi. You were saying? Hitomi went to her winter coat, where it hung on a peg, and brought out the calligraphy box. Setting it before the others, she opened it and brought out the origami bird. When the bird had returned to Hitomi's finger and her three friends were sufficiently astounded, Hitomi said to them, I must ask you to keep this secret. I am the only one my grandfather ever told of this, and I am sure he had a reason for that. Our lips are sealed, Mr. Raymond assured her, but why are you telling us? As I said, it is your bookstore, and if I may... I would like to use this to keep the store safe. From the burners? Other things as well, but mainly that. All right, said Mr. Raymond. What all can be done with this? I don't know it all myself, yet. I've been doing a lot of experimenting. She brought out another bird, identical to the first, but made only recently. It hopped off her finger to the counter. And not only that, Hitomi asserted, Mr. James, would you please bring me some paper? While Mr. James complied, Hitomi uncorked a bottle she had withdrawn from the box and poured the water into the ink jar. When the paper was procured, she tore it into halves. Dipping the brush into the water, she drew an invisible character on the right-hand half. Mr. Raymond, may I use your lighter? She held the flame to the unmarked piece of paper. It caught fire and was half burned before Hitomi blew it out. Now watch this. She held the flame to the paper with the invisible mark. It would not ignite. It would not so much as blacken. Mr. Raymond nodded, impressed. Now, would one of those marks do for an entire book, or would you have to mark every page? Hitomi smiled. Only one mark for each book. I experimented with Hornby's 13 steps. A book no one would miss, said Mr. Raymond, smirking. One question, said Miss Stacy. Must you always use water for the ink? Hitomi shrugged. I do not know. There's certainly nothing special about the water. I got this from a spigot back home. So the power lies in the brush. Or possibly the ink jar. Or both. The use of water may simply be a means of concealment, Mr. Raymond said. If your grandfather wanted this secret kept, then it would stand a reason for him to keep his brush strokes hidden. Hitomi nodded. It might very well be. In any event, Mr. Raymond went on, you certainly have my leave to mark these books with your brush. How many can you do in one night? Let's find out, shall we? About a week later, posters and banners were hung throughout Minneapolis and St. Paul, announcing President Hornby's imminent arrival. Even the police dirigibles patrolling the Minnesota skies supported streamers declaring President Hornby, October 17, in red, white, and blue letters. Meanwhile, Mr. Raymond exchanged P-mails with Edgar Allan Poe. Poe sent a check, signed Arthur G. Pym, to help with the repairs, which Mr. Raymond cashed with no problem whatsoever. Poe also sent P-mails explaining the circumstances under which he would be arriving in Minneapolis. These Mr. Raymond destroyed, not revealing their contents even to his employees. At last, the day of October 17th rolled around, and anticipation was high. The Hornby banners and posters increased exponentially as the week wore on. 
but the true anticipation, in the bookstore if nowhere else, was for Poe. As the day waned, the excitement mounted. Normally, people would depart at this time to be home by the 9 p.m. curfew, but today, nobody was leaving. Hitomi saw the bald man around 8. As usual, he held a book and completely ignored it, staring about him with a quiet, intense gaze. Just then, Mr. James and Miss Stacy approached. Mr. James's face was grim, while Miss Stacy's was alarmed. The bald man, Hitomi said. I know. Not just that, said Mr. James, jerking his head over his shoulder. Looking, Hitomi saw another bald man, much younger than the first, his head shaven. Then she saw another, and a shaven-headed woman. How many? she asked. Eight of them, as far as I can tell, said Miss Stacy. What do we do? When Mr. Raymond was notified, he said, If we ask any of them to leave, they'll know we're on to them, and they might try something desperate. Might they try to kill Mr. Poe? Mr. James asked. They've never taken a life before, said Miss Stacy. Their only target was the written word. Newspaper publishers, halls of records, archives, bookstores, that sort of thing. Well, they're definitely here because of Poe, said Mr. Raymond, which means they're going to try something big. He turned to Hitomi. Are we prepared? Against fire, Hitomi replied. I don't know what else they might try. Mr. Raymond sighed. I'd better talk to Poe. We'll see what he says about this. Walking away from the counter, he stopped and spoke with a thin figure wearing a shabby tweed coat, a wide-brimmed hat, and suspiciously well-polished shoes. When their conversation was over, Mr. Raymond looked up and mouthed the words, We go on with it. At last, the hour of nine struck, and the door was locked. Now no one in the store would be allowed to leave until morning. Mr. James and Miss Stacy drew the drapes over the storefront windows, drapes thick enough to block all light to the outside. Mr. Raymond and Hitomi lit a pair of lanterns and placed them on either side of the table in the middle of the store. The man in the floppy hat and the tweed coat removed these garments to reveal the white-haired, well-tailored visage of Edgar Allan Poe. Applause erupted, most loudly for Mrs. O'Morphy, who smiled at Hitomi from across the room. Jessica was not with her. The child would, of course, be in bed at this late hour. Hitomi felt a little better for that. Poe acknowledged the applause with a grave nod. Stepping behind the table, he said, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming here. I will begin by reading to you a story called The Black Cat. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. This was one of Poe's early stories, written decades before the war, but it was clear why he had chosen it for this reading. It flew directly in the face of President Hornby's ideas of positive literature, with its tale of murder, of mental and moral decay, and above all, to use the story's own word, perverseness. As Poe read the story, the skin of his forehead beaded with sweat, his eyes blazed with a light that seemed more than the reflected rays of the lanterns, his pepper-gray mustache quivered. His voice rose in volume and pitch. Whether because the story called for it, or because Poe was caught up in his own narrative, there was no telling. The audience was certainly caught up. They stood entranced, breathless, living heart and soul for this moment in Poe's world. It was a macabre world, certainly morbid, twisted, perverted, horrific, but it was alive. As Satomi looked at the audience, her gaze fell upon the bald man. In the dim lantern light, she saw his eyes were closed and his lips were moving. He was mouthing the words of the story as Poe said them. Mr. James whispered in Hitomi's ears, You see what he's doing? She looked at him. He's memorizing the story? Indeed, before I escaped north, I spent many a night sneaking out and hiding beneath a certain bedroom window, listening to a mother read aloud to her children. Mostly it was Scott's Ivanhoe. Not the story I would have chosen, but there's always something desirable about forbidden fruit. I can still quote entire chapters from memory, and when I memorized those chapters, I moved my lips. He nodded to the bald man, just like that. Meanwhile, Poe finished his story. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. 
The crowd burst into raucous clapping as Poe mopped his forehead with a handkerchief. Thank you, he said. It is accolades such as yours that convince me the cause for which I fight is a worthy one. He paused for effect, then said, And now, if I may, I would like to address a subject that concerns all of us. Indeed, it concerns all who value the written word and the powers who wield it. To be specific, there is a question I wish to ask, and it seems we are presented with a unique and rare opportunity in which to ask it. For it is my understanding that there is at least one, and most likely more than one, burner among us. Dead silence fell. The bald man's eyes were closed as he memorized the last of Poe's story, and it was a moment before he noticed the quiet. Now everyone remain calm, said Poe. The burners have never done harm to people, only to property. And I am placing my faith in them that they will not change their tactics now. My question to the burners is simply, why? Why do you seek the total eradication of the written word that has been my most useful and at times my only weapon in my war against that imbecile Hornby? For a while, it looked as if Poe's question would go unanswered. But then, with an air of decision, the bald man stepped forward. Mr. Poe, he said clearly, as a man accustomed to speaking in public, you are correct. There are burners among you, and I am one of them. Addressing the audience, he said, You all have my assurance that none of you will come to any harm. You are not the targets here. As to your question, Mr. Poe, the answer is quite simple. The burners seek the complete and total eradication of the written word to set us free. Not just the burners, all of us, to make us all equal. Poe's frown was full of questions. Allow me to explain, the bald man went on. Since before we were born, this country has been governed, or perhaps a better word would be controlled, by means of a bureaucracy. At the moment of our birth, we are given a name, and that name is written on a piece of paper that says, This is your father, this is your mother. It also determines, by implication, your social status, your wealth. It determines whether you will be rich or poor, powerful or powerless. He picked up a book and held it up for all to see. These symbols, these scratchings that are emblazoned upon our lives, these are the chains by which the powerful keep us down. The powerful can write them, we cannot. The powerful can change them, we cannot. But we can destroy them. It is this that the burners seek to do. And in so doing, they will set the people free. Sir, Poe spoke up in a level voice. While I sympathize with your plight, traumatic as it must be, and laud your general cause, I must object strongly to your means of serving it. I myself have lived in poverty for years on end during my lifetime, but I endured those times, survived them. He held up the papers from which he had read his story by subsisting on words I put down on paper. You are a storyteller, the bald man acknowledged, who wishes to make a living. I have no quarrel with that. Your crusade against Hornby is one I have followed with much interest, and I wished you well in that battle. I am working toward the same end, and this is how I choose to achieve it. It is not your stories I seek to destroy, only your chosen means of relating them. He paused, then asked, Would it surprise you, Mr. Poe, to learn that I have committed your story to memory? No, it would not, Poe replied, since I saw your lips moving along with the story as I read it. Oh, it's an impressive feat, don't mistake me, and I am flattered you consider my story worth memorizing. But that does not change my objection to your goal of abolishing literacy. The bald man held up his hands, begging for understanding. Please, Mr. Poe, I only seek to destroy the means by which the affluent, present Hornby and his kind, keep the poor in the gutter. He placed an index finger on his temple. In memorizing your story, I have given you a gift. You have my solemn word that I will pass this story down, this and any other story you care to recite to me, to the generations that come after, and they will pass it down to their descendants, downward through the ages. Brother Leon here, he indicated one of his shaven-headed comrades, has performed the onerous task of reading stories to me from vile pages such as these, and each of those stories are whole and intact in my mind, waiting to be related to others. 
Your stories will live forever through me and those who follow me. He held out his hands to the literary giant before him. We share a common cause, Mr. Poe. Refusing to join me only serves the enemy. At that point, Mr. James spoke up. Sir, he said, before the war I lived south of the Mason-Dixon line. Like you, I and my family along with me were kept down by those who were more affluent. And like you, his voice became quiet, gentle. We did not know how to read. Yes! The bald man trembled with gratitude. Yes, you understand. I understand, said Mr. James, but I disagree. Literacy was denied to us, and it was by means of that denial, among other things, that the affluent kept us down. When I escaped north, one of the first things I did was teach myself letters. Instead of taking weapons away from people, it is better to give weapons to those who don't have them. Judging from your speech, sir, you seem to be an intelligent person, and I have taught others to read, he indicated to Tommy. If you want, I'll teach you as well. At this, the bald man's face reddened. Holding the book with a white-knuckled grip, he hissed, They will not reveal themselves to me. These marks, these blots refuse to convey anything to my mind. I have been to any number of teachers, instructors, tutors, and none of them were able to unlock the secrets these damned things hide from me. Very well. He threw the book down. If you will not join me, then at least you will not interfere with my work. All who do not wish to burn with this store would be wise to leave now. Open the door, Mr. Raymond said to Miss Stacy. Everyone, please leave in an orderly fashion. He's giving us the opportunity. Let's use it wisely. As the innocent bystanders left, those with shaven heads reached inside their coats, withdrawing matches and bottles of what must have been kerosene. Neither Poe, nor Mr. Raymond, nor any of his employees moved. Mr. Raymond glanced at Hitomi. She replied with nervous eyes, but remained where she was. When everyone else was gone, the burners began spilling kerosene all around them. The bald man said, "'If you insist on staying here, you will burn down with these books.' Sir, Mr. Raymond tried to reason with him. If you burn down the store, you will burn Mr. Poe down with it. Do you want his death on your conscience? Do you want him as a martyr against your cause? With wild eyes, the bald man looked at Poe, who regarded him with a dark, resolute gaze. The bald man's teeth grated as he teetered on the balance. Then the dam burst. His work will live on through me and my progeny, he shrieked. That payment will have to be enough. Burners! He called to his minions. Perform your duty. They struck their matches, and the books began flying off the shelves. Not falling, flying. Their covers and pages flapped like the wings of birds as they swooped, circled, and hovered overhead. Miss Stacy shouted to be heard over the din. Hitomi, what's happening? I don't know. Hitomi stared at the flying books, confused, frightened. Would Grandfather have known what would happen? Frantic, she called out, Stop! The books did not heed her. Then she remembered herself and repeated the word in Japanese, and the books obeyed. They fluttered down and settled on the floor, on the table, even on the shoulders of the burners, who held themselves rigid. Do not harm them, Hitomi said, still speaking in Japanese, only frighten. She paused, then said, now. A silence ensued that was somehow contemplative. Then two books took flight and headed straight for the lamp standing on the table where Poe had done his reading. They hovered directly over the lamps, then suddenly clamped shut. The gusts of air thus created snuffed out both flames, plunging the bookstore into darkness. And then the screaming began. When the lamps were relit in the basement, the burners were long gone. Mr. Raymond and his employees were a bit frightened themselves. Even Poe was caught in a stunned silence. But, upstairs, the books were now all on their shelves, exactly as they had been arranged, giving no indication that they were mobile or sentient. Turning to Hitomi, Mr. James asked, What just happened here? Hitomi took a deep breath, not quite recovered from the excitement. It was not something I had anticipated. This can be done using any art or any language. But perhaps I should have. They still obeyed you, 
said Mr. James, laying a hand on her shoulder. Remember that. That's not good enough. Turning to Mr. Raymond, she said, I am sorry. I should have taken more care to understand my grandfather's art. Mr. Raymond, visibly shaken, still found it within himself to laugh. There's nothing to apologize for, Miss Satomi. The store wasn't burned down. The books are safe, though I am curious why they acted of their own volition. Did the book you experimented on do anything like that? No, but I think I know why. I think I know too, said Miss Stacy. What book did she experiment on? Hornby's Thirteen Steps? A work completely devoid of imagination, let alone artistic merit, whereas every other book here is a product of an artist's craft? And that craft, said Poe, who had had everything explained to him in those last few minutes, combined with Miss Satomi's calligraphy, endowed those books with volition, among other things. Nobody had seen anything in the darkness, but the burner screams to be freed from a nailed coffin or to be saved from a blade on a swinging pendulum were highly audible. Poe frowned thoughtfully. There is a story in all of this. I should have no difficulty making it dark enough to offend President Hornby's sensibilities. The next morning, Mr. Raymond closed the store for the day, allowing everyone to go home. Hitomi walked down the street to the trolley stop, eager for bed. Good morning, Miss Hitomi. She turned to see Mrs. O'Morphy trotting towards her. Good morning, Hitomi replied. Is all well with you after last night? Actually, I was quite exhilarated, Miss O'Morphy grinned. Most of the local police were busy babysitting Hornby, so most of us had no problem evading them. One or two people were arrested for violating curfew, but what of that? After a night in jail and a early-to-bed, early-to-rise lecture, they were back on the street. Did the police find out anything? Hitomi asked. About Poe? I heard some of the burners were arrested before they could escape through the gutters. The women walked at a lazy pace, their minds intent on conversation. They were raving incoherently about what happened, so the police sent two patrolmen to the bookstore, which was perfectly closed when they found it. She turned to look at her friend. What exactly did happen, Hitomi? Miss O'Morphy was a trusted friend. Can I count on your discretion? Of course. Hitomi chose her words carefully. Do you remember the story you told me about the golem? Mrs. O'Morphy nodded. But before Hitomi could go on, she saw the bald man sitting a few feet away. She felt no fear, for it was obvious he was now a broken man. He had poured his life and hope into last night, and he had failed. In his white-knuckled hands he held the newspaper, and he stared at it with red, weeping, unblinking eyes, trying to force the letters and numbers to make sense. Judging from those eyes, he had not slept at all. Hitomi approached, stopping just outside of arm's reach. Eventually, he turned to look at her. Gone, he whispered. My followers, my goal, my purpose, gone. A sob escaped him. I am no one, nothing. Softly, Hitomi spoke. We do not begrudge you a purpose, sir, just that purpose. And bureaucracy is not something you can truly destroy. The bald man looked at the newspaper again. They won't reveal themselves to me, he said. There are ways around that, said Mrs. O'Morphy, and Poe meant it when he said that memorizing his story was an impressive feat. The bald man nodded. I only wish to make everyone equal. Not by destroying order, said Hitomi. Right goal, wrong means. What means, then? What other means is available to me? Hitomi understood him. Destruction was always the last resort, an act of desperation. The bald man had memorized Poe's story. This meant that he was passionate about literature, and, perhaps, about artistic creativity in general. Perhaps he could be taught to create as well as preserve. In that moment, Hitomi resolved to start by teaching him origami. Feedback for Podcastle episode number 63, Tanathui's Retelling of Rapunzel. This one drew some interesting responses. Some feminists banged their heads on their desks, other listeners wondered why the story of Rapunzel was retold at the end of the tale, and some just asked, Lettuce? Ms. Mack said, I adore retellings of older stories, and overall I really enjoyed this one. 
After the inner feminist comments, I felt slightly guilty about it, but I eh, still enjoyed it. Canasta said, I like the way that it wasn't really a retelling, but a whole new story and a funny explanation for how the fairy tale itself came about. Definitely let down by the rape antidote, though. A couple of days of diarrhea considered sufficient punishment for a rapist? I don't think so. That aside, enjoyable. Personally, I did not mind the retelling of the original fairy tale at the end, as I found that, although I thought I knew the Rapunzel story, on hearing this I realized I had forgotten all the detail, so it was good to have my memory refreshed. That's all the feedback I have for you this week. I'm told my time out of the dungeon's up. But first, let me remind you, t-shirts. Everyone must have a t-shirt. Get your true love a fire breather of a t-shirt over at poddisc.com. Ray guns and tentacles also in stock, as well as archive discs. While you're online, why not drop by at forum.escapeartist.net and tell us how you think we're doing. Until then, burn them if you've got them. We'll see you next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Edgar Allan Poe said, It is by no means an irrational fancy that in a future existence we shall look upon what we think our present existence as a dream. <laughs> <laughs>